So I'd like to speak about the fourth of the five controlling faculties, which is samadhi, often translated as concentration, but I think more accurately reflective of uh, the collectedness of the mind, the stability of the mind, the continuity of mindfulness. Concentration implies, seems to imply something other than stability, continuity, and collectedness. So I'll explain that as we go along. The mind by nature, the Buddha said, is radiant and pure. It is because of visiting forces known as defilements or torments, kalesas, that we suffer. It is because of forces that visit the mind that cause our suffering. In any moment of mindfulness, which is remembering to recognize the present moment's experience, which implies or includes both a subjective feel of the present moment and an objective recognition of the present moment. So in any moment of mindfulness, there's no delusion. There is a clear seeing without any spin, without any agenda, without any explanation, without any uh, rationalization. It's just mindfulness sees clearly, straight, without any spin. And this path of awakening, the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path, is involves increasing the continuity of those moments of mindfulness. And as the continuity of mindfulness increases, there is the corresponding ongoing purity of the mind, meaning the mind remaining pure or free of torments. This purification of mind is called Samadhi, or Chaita Vizudhi, the mind that is secluded, Vizudhi, the mind that is pure and is secluded from the torments. And this Samadhi is a state of consciousness that is momentarily, temporarily, free of any of the torments. So we could say that, experientially, it feels like the stream of consciousness moment after moment after moment, is free of torments. So we get to enjoy for a more uh, enduring period of time, and it has uh, consequences. So Mahasi Sayadaw, in his book, How to Practice Vipassana, or How to Practice Insight Meditation, acknowledges that these hindrances, the familiar attachment, aversion, restlessness, sleepiness, doubt, These hindrances are obstacles to the continuity of mindfulness. Because any moment that we are entangled in a narrative of attachment, aversion, doubt, restlessness, sleepiness, the mind's not pure. And so there's no momentum, there's no continuity. And this is what causes us to suffer. Even today in your practice, when you were most suffering, 
you know, impatient, frustrated, disappointed, struggling, striving, critical, doubtful, it's because of an ongoing entanglement in one of these hindering narratives rather than an ongoing clarity of remembering to recognize the present moment's experience. So as we practice mindfulness, it temporarily arrests these torments, purifies the mind of torments, resulting in what is called mental seclusion. The mind is secluded from the torments. And this seclusion, samadhi, collectedness of mind, stability of mind, has the capacity to see through the illusions or delusions that we lay on top of experience. We have all kinds of beliefs, assumptions, unexamined uh, expectations about moment-to-moment experience, familiar and novel, or novel, and we don't see things as they really are. Sairo Pandita says, we live under multiple layers of delusion. And so the path of insight is the path of gradually developing the continuity of mindfulness, the collectedness of mind, the power of the mind, to a laser-like piercing capacity to see through the layers of confusion and delusion so that we see things as they are. And when the mind is collected and sees things as they are, then wisdom arises. Now we understand, oh, this is the way it is. This wisdom frees the mind from suffering, both momentarily in an ongoing way, obsessively, and eventually permanently. So this just coming to a retreat like this, coming or leaving your familiar family, home, domestic, civic, social, professional uh, obligations, responsibilities, relationships, entanglements. If we just came to the forest here for a week and did nothing but just hang out, the physical seclusion would be a great relief to the mind. We just wouldn't be as easily tormented by trees, birds, <laughs> rain, rainfall, as we are by the news, the traffic, you know, the entanglement with others in the multiplicity of relationships that we have in the world. And we just hung out, just kind of like, you know, kind of went at the pace of trees. We'd be pretty chilled after a week. Even if we weren't practicing anything more rigorous, But, nevertheless, you know that just being here for a week, hanging out, the mind would find something to obsess about. (laughs) Wherever you go, the mind goes with you. And the mind that you, you know, the body that you took away from uh, the, the entanglements of life brings the mind that's entangled in that life with it. And so, well, we know that we would be, you know, fretting and stewing and anxious and couldn't wait to get back, to get re-entangled, and, you know, to kind of 
pick it all up again. So this mental seclusion takes work. Secluding the mind from the obsessing or obsessive torments takes the work, and it's the work of mindfulness. So in the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path, the fourth noble truth, uh, the Buddha lays out three trainings for dealing with, for handling, managing uh, our suffering. And the first of the trainings is the training in sila, or uh, ethics, morality, like we are doing here, practicing uh, the precepts. And what sila practice does is it purifies the intention in the mind before speaking and acting. So that we do not act out in a way transgressively harming others. So we say that sila purifies the mind of transgressive torments so that we're not causing harm to others, ourselves or others, and it allows us to experience the happiness of harmony within ourselves. We're acting in alignment with our authenticity and our integrity and harmony with others in the care with which we speak and act in relation to them. We become a good human being. This kind of good human beings are recognized worldwide. Every culture, every society, every neighborhood, every community values those who are careful and considerate of others, speaking the truth, not misappropriating property, uh, not harming. So this is, this is kind of obvious, and yet it's not always easy. And even if we are, even to the extent that we are able to uh, not harm by speaking and acting, the mind can still be obsessed with what it would like to do. <laughs> you know, thoughts of, you know, not necessarily harming, but just carelessness. And so the second training of the Noble Eightfold Path is the practice of <coughs> samadhi, secluding the mind from the obsessive torments. And when we're able to do that, to some degree, we're able to enjoy the happiness of the mind that's secluded or subjectively experienced as tranquil and calm. Nevertheless, conditions change, you know, things happen. We can't always be kind of at the top of our game. And so we would recognize that adventitious conditions come together and can provoke obsessive torments at any time. So a more powerful yet more subtle training was offered to address the latent torments, the seeds of reactivity in the mind, to uproot them before they have a chance to sprout. And this is the practice of insight, or Vipassana. Because what Vipassana aims to do is not just purify our speech and behavior, and not just purify the mind of obsessive torments, but to purify our understanding of latent torments. So what we're talking about is the development of samadhi through continuity of mindfulness, purifies the mind so that we can be tranquil, so that we can be you know, kind of present with things in a kind of a clear way. But we still may have seeds of misunderstanding in the mind, unexamined assumptions 
about what we are mindful of. And so it's through the practice of insight that we take a look at our beliefs, our assumptions, our expectations, the things that we just take for granted as this is the way it is. But it's the way that leads to suffering. So as we practice insight, we gradually purify our understanding of the potential to react by clearly seeing this is the way things are. So the heritage, or I should say the the standing of samadhi in the Buddhist teachings is pretty noble because it's one of the eight path factors of the noble path. It's one of the five spiritual faculties, one of the three trainings of the noble eightfold path, and one of the seven factors of awakening. So samadhi is pretty highly regarded, and the Buddha taught a lot of samadhi practices and praised those who practice samadhi. Samadhi being tranquility practice. But to paraphrase the Buddha, he said, there is no limit to the power of a concentrated mind. So we talk, we can talk about concentration or collectedness of mind as if it appears along a spectrum of not very concentrated to a little more concentrated, a little more collected to very collected. But there's it's a spectrum without ends. There's no limit to how collected the mind can become. Meaning there's no limit to what can be known by the collected mind. So, the second thing the Buddha said about samadhi and collectedness is reflecting on the power of a concentrated mind can drive you crazy. So, it's best not to try to kind of imagine what the concentrated mind can do, can know, and how it relates to the phenomena of the world. This collectedness of mind, called concentration of mind, samadhi, is the result, or is a function of, the continuity of mindfulness. Now, you know from our practice here that you can be mindful of physical objects, you can be mindful of environmental stimulation, sight, sounds, taste. You can be mindful of uh, mental activities, cognitive processes. You can be mindful of emotions. You can be mindful of the past, the future, the present. You can be mindful of the knowing that knows all of this. And so the object of your mindfulness can be anything. It's, it's not limited to one thing. Even though we may use as a technique mindfulness of one object, one experience, to kind of stabilize, initially stabilize our, uh, the mind. But it's not limited to that one object. It is as if the mind, the mindfulness, collects the scattered pieces of the mind that are, you know, kind of reflecting on the past and planning the future, dealing with something in the present, and and it's just kind of dispersed throughout the the mind. And it's not very uh, collected, it's not very powerful. The, The function of the mind is just kind of scattered. And so, by developing a continuity of mindfulness, we collect the mind, we keep it from scattering and dispersing to many, or a proliferation of experiences. And when we're able to 
establish some continuity of mindfulness on any object, it it gives us when we when we establish a continuity of mind without any of the torments, we really notice it. We we notice there's some delightful mental state that arises. And on a retreat like this, if we're doing object-oriented practice, focusing on the breath, it usually takes three or four days of keeping at it before you get a hit of samadhi. And then it's 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 kind of like you kind of work and work and work, and then suddenly suddenly you just kind of drop in and you're just there. And it's so quiet and tranquil and still and it's so effortless. You just go, that's it. Got it. Temporarily. (laughs) But nevertheless, it's that hit of samadhi, that mind secluded from the torments that hooks us into practice. Once we taste that, we go, now I know, now I got an idea. Now I get a taste of what's going on with this practice. Because it is an experience free of torment. And it happens because we let go of indulging in them. And so this is, this is the hook of the Dharma. That we get a taste of freedom. Just a little taste of freedom from our obsessions, freedom of, from our tormented mind. And even though we can't sustain it, we can't maintain it, we can't command it to happen, we know that it happens through training the mind. And that's what keeps us coming back. We keep looking for something like that, or furthering it, or improving it, or having greater access to it uh, more frequently, more easily. Being secluded from the torments, you know, we feel still, we feel calm, we feel steady, we feel like there's a, a, a kind of effortless energy that's just kind of happening, and the body feels pleasant, there can be great excitement, Something like joy or excitement or a simmering, more like a simmering, you know, pleasantness in the mind, a sense of accomplishment, a sense of achievement, our confidence. We feel we don't have any doubt about that kind of experience. We just say, "Oh, got it." And even though we might not identify it as faith or confirmed faith or verified faith, we feel confident. We feel steady, and. Know, the, the body is comfortable and we're not caught in reactivity. And so it's just a generally all-around enjoyable uh, state of mind. That's samadhi. But Dogo Kinsey Rinpoche, he, great Tibetan teacher of the last century, he comments about the mind. And he says, what we normally call the mind is the deluded mind, which is a turbulent vortex of thoughts whipped up by attachment, anger, and ignorance. Pretty familiar. This mind is always being carried away by one delusion after another. Thoughts of hatred or attachment suddenly arise without warning, triggered off by some circumstance, such as an unexpected meeting with an adversary or a friend. And unless these are immediately overpowered with the proper antidote, these reactions quickly take root and proliferate, reinforcing the habitual predominance of hatred and attachment in the mind and adding more and more karmic imprint. But, however strong these thoughts may be, 
They're just thoughts. And they will eventually dissolve. Back, and they will eventually dissolve. Just as clouds form, last for a while, and then dissolve back into the empty sky, so too deluded thoughts arise, they remain for a while, and then they vanish in the emptiness of the mind. In reality, nothing at all has happened. Phew! Thank goodness. I thought all my thoughts were, you know, bothersome. But let's just say that's the direction we're going, to the understanding that these thoughts, they come, they arise due to causes and conditions we don't have any control over. You know, we adore them for a while. If we get involved with them, entangled with them, we can perpetuate them for a long time. But if we know the way out of entanglement, mindfulness, then we can see they come, they go. What's the problem? Don't get don't get entangled in them. So the primary mental factor of samadhi is what's called ekekata, one pointedness. Meaning, in this moment, the mind is on one thing. That one thing can be any size, any shape, any color, any texture. But nevertheless, for a moment, it's on one thing. But this happens in every moment of consciousness, whether we're practicing or not. And so this gives us a clue, or this lets us know that we can develop wholesome samadhi, or we can develop a collectedness of mind that's not wholesome. So, you know, to develop wholesome mindfulness, we remember to recognize the present moment. And we can develop wholesome mind, free of free of the torments, not distracted, whatever. But you can use that same activity of mind, careful, precise continuity of attention, to do something unwholesome. Imagine a thief in the night. A thief in the night, just quietly, just kind of walking up to the window, just checking to see if the window's unlocked. It is. Just kind of opening the window very quietly, very attentive. Really, you know, not making a casual or careless move and just kind of keeping his act, his or her act together to kind of like, yeah. And so you can become very collected, very concentrated in an unwholesome way. That's the danger of samadhi. Or that's the danger of concentrated mind. You need to keep your mind headed in a wholesome direction. Or... It will, quite naturally, as we know, if, if we're not practicing, actively practicing mindfulness, you know where your mind goes. Into the ditch. You know, off into attachment, aversion, frustration, disappointment, anxiety, depression. So we don't want to do that with a concentrated mind. Okay. So, this um, collectedness of mind manifest or samadhi manifests as peace of mind or calmness. And this occurs when the restlessness of the wandering mind, the scheming, strategizing mind is just trying to figure out and get its way, quiets down. And the emotional states subside too. Then the mind feels steadfast, stable, not restless, not agitated, not anxious, 
And as the Buddha said, one who is concentrated knows and sees things as they really are. Samadhi is the second training of the Noble Eightfold Path. The first being Sila, the second being Samadhi. And Samadhi, the second training, involves three three factors. Right effort, or wise effort, right mindfulness, or wise mindfulness, and right concentration, right Samadhi, wise Samadhi. Now, in talking about uh, these three trainings, I spoke about right effort, last night, a couple nights ago, and you understand what right effort is now, or all the, all the ways of making wise effort, which is supported by, or encouraged by, faith, the first of the uh, controlling faculties. So faith, supporting this effort, this effort resulting in mindfulness, and the continuity of mindfulness giving rise to samadhi. Now, I'm going to talk about mindfulness a little bit and the development of samadhi, but I want to point out that the main obstacle to samadhi are the five hindrances, attachment, aversion, restlessness, tightness, <coughs> and doubt. There are five factors most responsible for developing samadhi. And they are the five factors that most directly oppose the five hindrances. The five jhanic factors oppose the five hindrances. The development of mindfulness involves the first two. So to develop mindfulness, we remember we hear the instructions. Remember to recognize the present moment's experience. Now, if, if that just goes in one ear and out the other and doesn't stop to kind of be <laughs> looked at, we don't do anything. We just kind of like sit down and hope something happens. But if we do kind of catch it and say, okay, now what is it I'm supposed to do? Already we've kind of energized the mind. We've kind of like, okay, I'm going to do something here with this. And what is it we're going to do? We're going to turn our attention to the present moment and try to see what it is. Try to get what's happening in that present moment. And if we use an, a breath, the object of the breath, a chosen object, of course, that's where we direct our attention. If we're attending to awareness, then we heighten our interest and attention to the awareness. And so what we're doing with this kind of effort is we're connecting our intention, our aspiration, and our energy with the task at hand. So we're kind of opening up our mind, we're actively moving the mind in and towards the present moment, whatever it is. If we perceive, if we connect with the present moment and perceive it and recognize it, the mind lights up. The mind, the perceptual acuity of the mind goes, bing, got it, I felt it, I'm there, I'm with it. And this brightness of the mind is what keeps sloth and torpor out of the mind. So sometimes one of the antidotes for sloth and torpor is gazing at a light. You know, some, you know, in the olden days it was gazing at the moon, gazing at the sun, well, carefully, with your filter. And, uh, or 
the perceptual acuity, the brightness of your perception in the mind serves the same purpose. Okay, so when we activate, when we are able to connect our attention and our interest and our energy to the present moment and see, perceive clearly what it is, we've touched it. The mind has touched, and you know the mind has touched the present moment with this perception. This is called vitaka, or applying the mind to the present moment. So vitaka, or connecting, is the first concentrative or first jhanic factor to develop samadhi. And in the process, it you know, overcomes sloth and torpor. Now, a momentary touching of something doesn't give you much to go on. For example, if you just take one finger and place it on the back of your hand lightly, you can do this, you can do this. Just place it on the back of your hand, just lightly. What can you say about the texture of the back of the hand? Not too much. You know you touch something. But now just take and lightly rub your finger around the back of your hand. You feel the texture? Quite a, quite a lot of texture there, right? So, the same thing happens with the mind. When it just touches the present moment with connecting, there's a spark of perception, but not much. The second factor of mind, the second jhanic factor, the second factor of concentration is sustaining your attention, connecting and sustaining. Upandita likes to call it connecting and rubbing, where you rub the mind on the moment's experience. Of course, this is all happening pretty quick because you know how fast moments go by. But nevertheless, there's an activity of sustaining your attention, sustaining your attention on that experience. So, for example, if you're using the breath, breathing in takes second and a half, right? But it only takes a split second to know, oh, the breath, I'm there. But if you don't sustain the attention for the full duration of the second and a half or two seconds or one second, whatever it is, then the mind is off and it's gone elsewhere. So you have to really work at connecting and sustaining. Once you say sustain, sustain your attention by rubbing the mind on the object, not just touching, but touching and sustaining rubbing, then there's no doubt what you've tasted. There's no doubt what you've touched. You have a clear perception of the texture or of the flavor of that moment. That kind of sustaining overcomes all doubt. For that moment. You have no doubt about what your experience is. So now you have no sleepiness and no doubt. Vitaka and Vichara are connecting and sustaining are the two active, uh, active factors in developing mindfulness. To use awareness, same thing. So, instead of connecting with a physical object, we have, we've heard about awareness, we've heard about the nature of mind, we've heard that there's the object and there's the knowing. And so, while we have some vague idea of what awareness is, at least we're trying to connect with awareness. And so, we turn our attention, we check our attitude, and we go, okay, is there awareness here? What's the attitude of mind here? Again, 
you're turning your attention with energy, with aspiration, with intention to connect, to touch, and to sustain on the recognition of awareness. Whether you succeed or not is irrelevant, really. It's like you're making that effort. So that's the effort that banishes thought and torpor. And when you touch or connect and sustain, you'll have a clear reception, a clear perception of either awareness or something close to it, maybe your attitude of mind. So these two, connecting and sustaining, these two first jhanic factors, putting aside the first two hindrances, when that happens, you connect and sustain, if you can do that for some continuity, connect, sustain, connect, sustain, connect, sustain, this is being very continuous, I mean very continuous, for a period of time. The mind remains pure. Because in that connecting and sustaining, there's no attachment, there's no aversion, there's no confusion, there's no sloth and torpor, there's no doubt. Okay. So the mind is free of, is pure, for as long as you can sustain that connecting, sustaining, connecting, sustaining. And an interesting thing happens when the mind is unhindered in its work. Now, the mind, what does the mind do? The mind knows. That's the mind. That's what, that's the mind's nature. Is it's, it's aware. It knows. And when the mind can do its work of knowing unhindered, just from connecting, sustaining, connecting, sustaining, no, no hindrances, when it can do that, the mind takes great delight. The mind gets really happy. Not, this is not affect, affective happiness or emotional happiness. It's not like you deciding, oh, I'm so happy to be feeling the back of my hand. Yeah, wow. It's not that. It's like the mind is doing it, and when the mind is not hindered with thoughts and feelings of attachment, aversion, dread, anxiety, frustration, disappointment, it's just, it is light and carefree and energetic and ecstatic. That's the nature of the mind when it's unhindered. And so the third mental factor, the third, third, Jhanic factor, a third factor responsible for concentrating or collecting or samadhi in the mind is joy. And you don't have to arouse joy intentionally. It's not a technique. Oh, I'm going to arouse some joy. You can. You can turn your mind and reflect on joyful things. But that's not the kind of joy I'm talking about. That's to, that's kind of a, a superficial kind of like uh, address your, you know, daily a daily dose of depression or whatever it is. But this is something else. This kind of joy is something else that comes from the purity of the mind. And when it does, of course, the mind can be just delighted and the body gets, you know, when there's a strong, uh, strong or mental state, it conditions strong reactions or in the body. You know, when there's a lot of fear in the mind, it conditions a strong physical reaction. A lot of love in the mind conditions a strong physical reaction. A lot of joy in the mind considers a, con- conditions a strong physical reaction called piti jarupa, the materiality born of piti or joy. And it can be as little as, you know, thrills and chills going through the body or kind of like electric static kind of, kind of zooming through the body. Some people you know, and maybe it's just another tradition. Talk about the energy of Kundalini. Uh, I'm not saying that this is what it is, but it's got that kind of energy where the body is just filled with 
spontaneous movements and energy and uplifting energy to the point of ecstasy. I mean, pass out ecstasy. Okay, now just suppose, just just suppose you're kind of like kind of wallowing around in ecstasy. Are you going to have any aversion? Are you going to have any frustration, disappointment with this? Any kind of like anger and irritation? No. Joy overcomes and up overcomes temporarily all forms of aversion. There's no judgment. There's no no. Uh, whinging and whining, there's no impatience with it. It's just like the mind is delighted. Again, this is not a technique that you use to rouse this joy. It's from the purity of the mind that does that. So when it when that happens, of course, now we get it. It's like, wow, this, this practice works. And we have no doubt either. Of course, we didn't have any with that. But the subjective experiences of kind of spontaneous and exuberant interest, a lot of zest, a lot of fascination, delight, ecstasy. The mind is light, it's bright, conditioning a very light feeling in the body. You can feel like you're floating. I mean, really, you can feel like you're floating. And of course you have a lot of confidence, there's a lot of clarity. And, excuse me, the... um, the effect of joy is to just lighten and brighten the whole mind, the whole mental activity in the mind. When I was first practicing at this kind of to this kind of practice, I didn't recognize <coughs> joy because you know I've been years kind of trying to trying to find the breath, but at at some point in my practice, I realized that I kept waking up to this experience of feeling like I was an eagle or one of these big-winged birds that's just able to hover in the air, just gliding and swooping and swooning, just effortlessly being carried by the airwaves. Right? And I would just keep waking up to that kind of image in my mind until I realized well, that's what I was feeling in the mind and the body, was that light, swooping, swooning, just kind of like, and quiet. It's just, of course, it's ecstatic, it's just beautiful, it's wonderful, compared to knee pain, back pain, struggling, frustration, <laughs> disappointment, anxiety, you know, and trying to find the breath. And so, for me, I, you know, like I said, I, I'm, I'm a really slow learner. <laughs> I don't have really clear, clear insight. It's just going to hit me over the head several times before I'll realize that something's happening. But that's how I began to recognize, oh, this is what they're talking about. So, don't be surprised if it, if it takes a while to recognize in yourself. So the ecstasy, the joy that can manifest up to ecstasy, of course, is pretty seductive. We get pretty caught up in that. We get, we like that. And so it's, it's, has a, we have a tendency to attach to it, to get attached to it. Of course, as soon as you get attached to it and start indulging in it, you're no longer being mindful and you kind of fall down. And you kind of, you lose the momentum of the continuity because now you've got some uh, hindrances that are kind of creeping in. Some indulgence, some 
a kind of excitement that undermines your awareness and some attachment to it and hoping it lasts longer and suddenly it's going down and you get you know, disappointed. So, but if you can, if you can, when this is happening, if you can recognize, oh, this is this is joy, this is ecstasy, this is whatever it is, then it kind of mellows out to uh, what I what I'm going to call bliss. You know, it's not it's not so excited and so intense as ecstasy. It just kind of mellows out to bliss, and bliss is more like uh, just kind of floating on cotton swabs in a cool place. <laughs> no, I mean it, it's not quite so intense, thankfully. Actually, you know, ecstasy can get kind of intense. You know, it's kind of like <sighs> give me a break. And so, if you keep noticing that and with some continuity and not indulging in it, then then bliss. This is called sukha. Sukha is called happy comfort of mind and body, and it is the proximate cause for the kind of the. I don't want to say the peak collectedness of mind, but uh, a definitive samadhi or collectedness of mind, where you know the happy comfort of mind and body is just like here, everything is just okay. It's not exciting, it's not thrilling, but it's just like super okay. So this is the fourth uh, concentration factor or concentric factor, and when there's this happy comfort of mind and body where there's this extreme feeling of well-being and okayness, the mind is not restless. The mind is not wandering, looking for something else at all. It is quite content to just be there with that experience. And so the restlessness of the mind, the mind is kind of always going off, checking this out, checking that out, wandering here and there, uprooted, or I should say, arrested by this momentary experiences of sukha. And when we're able to kind of not indulge in the sukha, not, not get caught in attachment to that, but just keep, just being aware of that like it's just another experience being known in the present moment, then the mind stabilizes and just allows the present moment to be known. It allows the present moment to be known just, just as it is. And this one-pointedness of mind is the mind's ability to... to uh, single out a single sense contact in every moment. Now, right now, we're all listening, hearing, feeling, thinking. This. All the sense doors are actively being, you know, kind of like uh, overloaded right now. But when the mind, when the concentration factors are developed, it's clear which of those sense contacts is being accessed in every moment. It's fast. But it's clear. And so this single-pointedness of mind uh, arrests uh, the attachment and identification in the mind. So you can see that these five factors, connecting, sustaining, joy, happy comfort of mind and body, and one-pointedness, overcome sloth and torpor, doubt, aversion, restlessness, and desire. Now, when there's that kind of momentum when there's that kind of continuity to just recognizing the present moment, these things happen automatically. You don't have to go make them happen. You don't have to look for them. They will happen automatically. So as the continuity gets uh, like that, 
then the mind becomes very unified. And one-pointedness, this one-pointedness is a mental factor, it has these three characteristics. It's stable, steadfast, and solid. And the stability of the one-pointedness is that it's unshakable. It's on the object, it's not wavering, it's not wobbling, it's just right there for that moment of that object. It's not distracted by a plurality of objects. It knows which one in every moment to land on. And it's un- and we're actually unable to spread the mind to multiple objects. Just, just one, each moment. The steadfastness of, of one-pointedness is that it, that it enters into and stays on the object for the duration of the object. So that in tranquility practice, if you're doing for, for tranquility or jhanic practice, it enters into the object, it gets absorbed in the object. But if you're practicing vipassana and you're noticing multiple objects or different objects in the sequence, then rather than getting absorbed in the object, it penetrates through your misunderstanding or your delusion about the object. So it, it cuts through all the layers of belief and assumption, misunderstanding that the mind has about the object. But that's in practicing vipassana. Practicing jhana, it gets absorbed in the object, practicing vipassana, vipassana cuts through all the illusions we have about the object. And then its solidity is that the mind is collected, the mind is unified, the mind is not divided, it's not dispersed, it's not weak, it's strong. The mind is really solid. But as the Buddha said, this mind is difficult to control. Swiftly and lightly, it moves and lands wherever it pleases. It's good to tame the mind, because a well-trained, a well-tamed mind brings happiness. So as we're doing this practice in the first few days of the retreat or in the first period of time of your practice, which might be a year or two or a week, a class or two, whatever it is, in the beginning, when we try to be mindful in practicing Vipassana, we can't, we can't actually separate samadhi from mindfulness. Or I should say, trying to be mindful, we're going to be practicing tranquility and maybe some insight. Because we can't actually feel directly what the experience is. So, you know, when you first start, you know, like if you're paying attention to the breath, and you want to, you want to, you want to be with the breath. So, it often happens that we say, okay, let's, let's pay attention to the breath at the nostrils or the belly, and we get this anatomical map in our mind of like, okay, where's the, where's the breath here? Oh, it's going through these little holes here, okay, or it's down in the belly and it's doing this. And so, we're, we're holding our attention there. We know we're breathing in and we're breathing out. We're holding our attention in that area of the body, but we don't actually feel what's going on. We just have the idea in our mind that, okay, this is, this is where the breath is happening. I'm going to hold it here until something happens. You know, and just even without actually connecting with the tangibility of the breath, we can actually hold our attention there, knowing this is the in-breath, this is the out-breath, this is the in-breath, the out-breath. And that's enough to develop 
samadhi. Not enough to develop insight, but it's enough to develop samadhi. And only when we're then able to connect with the actual tangibility of the physical movement do we begin to taste the what's called the unique nature, the sabhava of the, of the experience. And then you begin to practice vipassana. So what I'm saying is that we can develop a lot of samadhi just from thinking. If you're just thinking of the in-breath when you're breathing in and thinking of the out-breath when you're breathing out, you can develop a lot of samadhi, a lot of stillness, a lot of seclusion of mind from the hindrances, actually. But because you're not feeling the actual tangibility of the breath, you're not going to be able to actually see directly the impermanence of it. The idea, well, the breath starts and stops, that's an idea. But that's not a direct observation of the beginning, duration, and ending of the tangibility of the breath. Same with awareness. In the beginning, when we look for awareness, we don't, we don't really have a very clear picture or tangibility. We don't really have a clear, what, what is it that I'm actually connecting with? Somehow we know there's something going on, but it takes quite a lot of, you know, just trying again and again, paying attention to what's this thing called awareness? You know, where's the mind? Where's the thing that knows it? You know, I know that there's something going on, but what is it? It's not very tangible. Of course, the mind isn't tangible, but we don't even have a clear enough experience of awareness to be able to um, say that we can see its impermanence. We know it comes and goes, but we don't see it for ourselves. So the idea that, oh, I was breathing in a minute ago, I'm breathing out now, therefore it's impermanent. That's just thought. That's not the direct experience. So Vipassana starts, Vipassana practice starts when you're able to feel the tangibility of physical, mental, emotional, and know the direct experience of awareness, if that's what you're using. So this is the difference in, or trying, trying to point to the difference between samadhi for, for the purpose of tranquility and absorption, and samadhi for the purpose of insight and wisdom. <coughs> So as I, as I mentioned, you know, when the, when the five factors of samadhi develop, then the mind is really collected, and if you're practicing samatha, or tranquility practice, when you send the mind to your object of choice, loving-kindness, or a color, or a mantra, a sound, then the mind can get absorbed in that object. That's, a, that's kind of like a, a full initial development of samadhi. But in, in Vipassana practice, we're not getting absorbed in objects, but rather we're <clears throat> observing the object, we're knowing the object, we're feeling the object in order to understand their nature, both their unique nature, you know, which is their distinctive taste, you know, as every, sens- every phys- physical sensation has its own taste, every mental state has its own flavor. And awareness, too, has its own flavor, its uniqueness. And that's what we taste. And when we, as we get close to that and are able to recognize these individual tastes, then we can see 
that they are permanent. Then we can see that they're conditioned. Then we can see that they are, have the dukkha characteristic, they're unstable. This is the beginning of insight. So, yeah. Let me just say that in the discussion of samadhi, often, and the Buddha talked a lot about this, and a lot of times you will hear talk about the states of samadhi called jhanas, levels of absorption. So that when these five factors come together and the mind gets absorbed in an object, that's first jhana. It's a special, it's kind of a unique uh, transition from non-jhanic to jhanic uh, mind, but it's an exalted state, but you can learn to recognize it. And then as you keep practicing that, you can enter successive degrees of collectiveness, and gradually what happens is you no longer have to make the effort of connecting, and then you can access second jhana, and when you no longer have to make the effort of sustaining, you can access third jhana, and then when you finally give up your delighting in ecstasy, you can enter fourth jhana, and when you finally get rid of, not get rid of, but just get, you know, kind of not caught by bliss, then you can enter fifth jhana, which is equanimity. Equanimity is not joy, it's not bliss, it's not connecting, not sustaining. It's just there, without effort or effortless energy, and not reacting to anything. That level of equanimity, or I should say, that's in absorption. When you're practicing Vipassana, you go through the same degrees of collectedness. There's all five <coughs> factors collected that results in a certain level of understanding the three characteristics and when the momentum of your mindfulness picks up and you no longer have to make the effort to connect then you can then you can access what's called second vipassana jhana which is a more refined understanding of the three characteristics mm-hmm. and if you keep practicing where you're no longer connecting and sustaining but you're just kind of riding on the joy of uh, the mind is feeding on joy then you can enter or you can access the third vipassana jhana which is a very refined knowledge of anicca, dukkha, and anatta. The fourth vipassana jhana is equanimity, where you're not indulging in any of the pleasant mental states, and the mind is equanimous, non-reactive, balanced, in relation to everything it sees. No matter what arises in the mind, or the environment, or the body, the mind is equanimous. It sees it clearly, it knows what it is, but it's not indulging in, it's not attracted to, it's not resistant to or pushing away from anything. And when that equanimity is mature or strong or ongoing in an ongoing way, this is the platform through which the mind accesses the unconditioned. Until then, the mind doesn't get to the unconditioned. But it's when the mind is not looking for nor resistant to anything but seeing clearly this is the way it is moment to moment, then it's possible for the mind to uh, leap to the unconditioned. I'll speak more about that tomorrow when we uh, discuss the fifth of the five spiritual faculties, wisdom. In ending, I'd like to say, or quote, Huang Po, Chinese Zen master who died in 
849. This pure mind that we've been talking about, the pure mind of samadhi, this pure mind, which is the source of all things, shines forever with the radiance of its own perfection. It is all-pervading, radiant beauty, absolute reality, self-existent and uncreated. It is a jewel beyond all price. This pure mind is a jewel beyond all price. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.